Our Father, as we come to Your Word today, we recognize that it is a great source of sanctifying and edifying grace. And Father, we need grace. We need to be sanctified. We need to be edified. And so we thank You, Father, that in Your eternal wisdom, in Your sovereign and eternal plans, You've given us Your Word in order that we may also have a source of instruction and conviction and most importantly, a source of knowledge of You, true knowledge of You. And so we ask, Lord, that You would use this time as a source of sanctifying and edifying grace. Help us, Lord, to grow in the likeness of Christ as we study Your Word today. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 22. I know it says 23 up there. We're going to be starting actually in Genesis chapter 22. Last week we covered the first half of this chapter, and the the first half of this chapter is recognized as Abraham's greatest test. In fact, it might be the greatest test that anybody in all of Scripture, aside from Christ, had to face. I have no doubt that this was one of the hardest moments of Abraham's life. And that's why Scripture repeatedly points back to it. It's why Scripture repeatedly looks back on Abraham's test with Isaac up on Mount Moriah as a test, as a picture of what true biblical saving faith looks like. And, you know, I almost wonder if the other uh, tests that he would face in years to come throughout the rest of his life would seem any easier in comparison. Since Since he did the tough one, would they get any easier? You, know, you, you would think that the more often you're tested, the tougher the tests you face, the less rattled you'll be when you're tested again in the future. And over the course of the past week, of course, many of you know that I've been tested. Christina had to be rushed to the emergency room on Wednesday night uh, for the third time in the past four months. And I would like to, to say, I, I'd like to, to imagine or think that I was less rattled this time than I was the previous two times, but I don't think it actually ever gets easier to feel like there's a chance that you're about to lose somebody whom you deeply love. Now, given what happened to Christina this week, I thought it was a little bit awkward um, as I contemplated the passage that I was going to be preaching on this week. And there are no coincidences in a, in a universe where God is sovereign, uh, but we're, we're going to be looking at the death of Abraham's wife today. At the same time, you know, maybe God orchestrated it this way, arranged it this way, because it would make me a little bit more sensitive to what Abraham was going through, what, what thoughts he had, what feelings he had. Don't ever say that God doesn't have a sense of humor, right? Um, yeah, that's, that's the conclusion I came to. God's sovereign. He knew that this is where I'd be. So the previous passage was a high point in Scripture. We, we said that it was a, like, like Mount Everest. It's the Mount Everest in terms of examples of true biblical saving faith. God had instructed Abraham to offer his only son, his son Isaac, 
the son that God had promised for so many years as a burnt offering unto God. And we saw that Abraham submitted his will unto the will of God. And we saw that that's what true biblical faith does. It doesn't just believe. Even the demons believe. But what good does it do them? They know who God is. They know who Jesus is. They believe. But they don't obey. They don't submit. So true biblical saving faith believes and submits in obedience. That doesn't mean that we're saved by submitting. It means that if you are saved, you will submit. You will obey. That's the fruit of a saved life. One of the other principles that we picked up in the passage last week is that God is sovereign over both life and death. And Abraham had to wrestle with that. He had to wrestle with that for the three days that he journeyed from where he was to where God wanted him to go. He had to come to terms with the fact that God is sovereign over it all. He had to deal with it as it related to his son. He's going to have to deal with the fact that God is sovereign over life and death again as it relates to the death of Sarah. And eventually he will have to deal with it as it relates to his own death eventually. But let's remember that we're talking about both the curse of death and the blessing of life. Because between the passage that we covered last week and the coming passage in which we're going to be looking at the death of Sarah, we find a small passage that a lot of commentators don't even really touch on. We ended at verse 18 in chapter 22 where we saw that God provided for Himself a ram that Abraham and Isaac would then sacrifice and offer as a burnt offering unto the Lord. Verse 19 transitions us out of that passage and into the passage that we'll be looking at today. Verse 19 says this. It says, So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. And you'll remember that Abraham told them, told his servants, we will be back. Yes, God has told me to, to slay my son and to offer him as a, as a burnt offering, but he tells his servants, we will be back. He had confidence that God had something in mind, something miraculous in store. So now Abraham is living in the land of Beersheba. This is the place where he had a well, where, where he and Abimelech had sworn an oath to one another in which Abraham and his offspring would have ownership, guaranteed ownership of this source of life and water in the wilderness. And it's at this point, as Abraham is now dwelling in the land of Beersheba, that he receives word that his extended family is growing. So let's look at Genesis chapter 22, verses 20 to 24. It says, Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz his firstborn, Buz his brother, Kemuel the father of Aram, Kesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Reuma, bore Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Meachah. Kurt, I should have had you read that. (laughs) 
Now, we can all freely admit that whenever you come to something like this, where you, you kind of stumble over the names, believe me, I get it. I, I must have read these, through these names like 50 times this week, trying to, trying to make sure that I had them, uh, had them down. But we can all freely admit that when we come across something like this, when we come across a genealogy, even one as short as this one, there is just this temptation that we have to just skip it. Because those names are totally foreign to us. We don't understand the significance of the names. We don't, we don't want to spend time looking at names. It's easier to just ignore it. The names are difficult to pronounce. And what does it have to do with us anyway? Well, the answer to that one is actually pretty easy. It starts with our understanding about the Bible. And that is that the Bible doesn't revolve around us. It's not about us. It's about God. It's about God. It's about His glory. It, and so the, the, the fact that God has decided from eternity in His sovereign wisdom to give us this short genealogy, just a, a list of Abraham's newest relatives, should indicate that there must be something significant about it, something important about it, and there is. And it reminds us that ultimately this story, this book, the book of Genesis, the whole Bible isn't about Abraham or any other man as much as it's about God. It's about his promises. It's about his eternal purposes. It's about his glory. It's about him. And and this tells us in advance that the story is going to go on. That the story of God's purposes and plans and promises it's going to continue even after Sarah's death and even after Abraham's eventual death. So in one sense, we have to see that this is kind of a reward for Abraham for the faith that he had displayed in the previous passage. And you might have to look between the lines a little bit to see the connection, but God had just reiterated in the previous passage, at the end of the previous passage, he had reiterated the promise that Abraham's offspring would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And he gives another picture. He says they'll also be as numerous as the sands of the seashore. So this genealogy introduces a new char- one, at least one new character who will be significant, Bethuel, who was the father of Rebekah, who would become the wife of Abraham's son, Isaac. But we're also reminded in this passage, kind of as a postscript, kind of as a PS, that sin has consequences. That sin has consequences. The passage ends with Moses, the author of Genesis, telling us that Nahor not only had children through his wife, he also had a concubine. Another woman whom he kind of had on the side with whom he had children. And we're introduced to some additional names that came through her. And the last one is really the most important one. That's the one that we would eventually need to be making note of if you were studying the whole Bible. We won't spend more time here than we need to, but Maacah's name would reappear in Joshua chapter 13, verse 13, where we read this. Yet the people of Israel did not drive out the Girgashites or the Maacathites, but Geshur and Maacath dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. So, his name shows up again. His name shows up again. The sin of Nahor would have consequences that would last. For generations, sin always has consequences. 
It, all, it might not seem like it. The lie of Satan is that sin is inconsequential, that nothing can come of it, that, that God's not really going to be mad about it. But sin always has consequences. And speaking of the consequences of sin, we shouldn't forget that one of the consequences of sin, perhaps the greatest consequence of sin that we see on a regular basis, is death. In fact, it is probably the greatest consequence. I was reading an article a few weeks back that said that if you drink coffee, it lowers the risk of you dying. And I, was, I just kind of got a laugh out of the, the way that it was articulated. You know, no, uh, let's be clear. There's an enormous difference between saying that coffee lowers your, uh, your risk of death and uh, saying that coffee prolongs your life. <laughs> the, the mortality rate is still holding strong at 100%. If the Lord does not return first, if the Lord tarries, every single one of us is going to die. We'll face that great enemy. And it's a consequence of sin. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says, Just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Notice that that's past tense. It's because Adam is our federal head. He's our representative before God. And so when Adam sinned, all of humanity sinned. He's our federal head. And the subject of death is somewhat intimidating because we all know that it's a reality. We do what we can to kind of shelter ourselves from the reality of death, but it is always there. We all know that it's a reality that we're all going to have to face eventually. We live in a society where we slaughter babies in the womb. We live in a society where funerals are kept kind of out of sight, out of mind, rather than doing a funeral procession where everyone is invited. They're usually very private and tucked away. And yet, as distant as we can try to remove ourselves from the reality of death, it is always lingering. It is always there. And there are some who would even go so far as to say that a Christian, there's no room for a Christian to grieve death because Jesus defeated it. And so why, is there, why should anybody grieve it? And I think that's wrong. The idea that we should be joyful and celebrate Christ's victory over death is true. Absolutely, 100%. But it's not incompatible with grieving over the death of a loved one. Let's remember that even Jesus grieved over the death of a friend. And this is exactly what we see Abraham doing as we come to the next couple of verses moving into chapter 23. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 together. It says, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. That is a natural, healthy response. He goes in and he grieves. She lived a a very long, productive, blessed life. 127 years. That is a long time. I'd say, you know, I I wish that I could live that long, except I don't. (laughs) That's a long time to live. Most of her life was spent with Abraham as Abraham followed God followed the calling of God out of Ur of the Chaldeans into the land of Canaan. She was 65 years old 
when they packed up and, and hit the road to follow God. And of course, she was by no means perfect. She had her flaws just like anybody else. She foolishly suggested to Abraham that because she couldn't bear children, she couldn't conceive children, well, why don't you just take my, my slave, Hagar, and have children with her? Why don't you take her as your wife, as your concubine, and have children with her? So this was, this was Sarah's idea, and Abraham jumped on it. He, he, he went along with it. And when he did, when, when he conceived a child with Hagar, Sarah then acted very, very aggressively and harshly toward Hagar. I mean, she could be as mean-spirited as anybody else. She sent Hagar out to die in the wilderness, basically. She, she ran off, and Sarah didn't chase after her. And when the Lord announced that Sarah would be with child a year from that point, in her old age, well past her childbearing years, she mocked God. She laughed at Him. Even though it was in the, in the silence of her heart, she did mock God. She laughed at His promise. And when she was called out for laughing at Him, even in the silence of her heart, when she was called out on it, her initial sin of disbelief was compounded. Because then she turned around and she lied to God. She said, I, I didn't laugh. And He said, yes, you did. I saw it. Because He's aware of everything. He's aware of what's going on in our hearts. Twice she was complicit in Abraham's lie that she was just his sister. She wasn't his wife. And these kings were ready to take her as their wife. So she's guilty. She's guilty in those situations. She did participate in those situations. But here's the thing. If you're going to live 127 years, and these are the worst things that you can say about somebody, honestly, they've lived a virtuous life. Sarah had her flaws. You might say, yeah, she's, she's only human, right? But she was a great, great woman of faith. Twice, in fact, we're instructed in Scripture to see her as an example of the type of faith that we should aspire to. The first is in Isaiah. Isaiah 51, verses 1 and 2. It says this, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. That's, that's me. Is that you? He says, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him that I might bless him and multiply him. So yeah, look, look to Abraham? Absolutely. We do it several times throughout both the Old and the New Testament. We look to Abraham as an example of biblical faith. We know that, right? The Bible repeatedly sets him forth as an example of biblical, obedient, saving faith. But Isaiah says, look at Sarah too. Look at his wife also. She too is an example of obedient, biblical faith. Abraham was an example of biblical faith because of the work that God had done in him. Absolutely, yes. But Sarah stood by him, stood by his side through it all. She stood with him and encouraged him throughout the journey. She was there when Abraham left his homeland. She was there when Abraham set out to defeat the invading kings who had captured all the citizens of Sodom who didn't escape into the hills, including Lot. 
She was there when Abraham came home and immediately circumcised himself and every male in the household. She was there through it all, and she is never, ever once recorded as having planted a seed of doubt, even the smallest seed of doubt or discouragement with God in Abraham's mind. Never once did she say, why are you following God instead of following your own heart? Never once did she say, you know, Abe, sometimes it feels like you love God a lot more than you love me. No, she wouldn't have had it any other way. Listen to what Peter says about her. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3-6. to He says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which, is God's, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy woman who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now Peter is addressing women in this context. He's specifically talking to women. Now women naturally have a desire, and it's not a bad desire, but they naturally have this desire to be beautiful externally. But Peter is saying, You know what makes a woman truly beautiful? Faith in God. Faith and submission unto God. And I know how uncomfortable that might make some people feel because our culture hates the word submission, especially when it's applied to a woman. I get it. It's something that we are, from birth, trained to resist. Trained to have kind of a a distaste for. Especially when it's applied to a woman. And yet, it's a word that should describe anyone, male or female. It's, It's a word that should describe anyone who has truly placed saving faith in Christ. If you believe, but you haven't submitted, you're no better off than a demon. And you haven't truly believed the way that Scripture instructs us to believe, whether you're a male or female, if you are refusing to submit. Peter's saying this is what makes a woman beautiful. She's humble before the Lord. She's faithful to the Lord. And she's more concerned with what's going on in her heart than she is with how she looks on the outside. And he uses Sarah as the example here. Is it strange that Sarah would get pointed out for her beauty, for her faithfulness, and that both the Old and New Testament point to her as an example of a great woman of faith? Is that strange? I mean, think about it. Even Mary, the mother of Jesus, doesn't get that kind of acknowledgement, not the kind of acknowledgement that Sarah gets. She was married to Abraham for more than 60 years. She had stood by and encouraged Abraham through many years of faithfully following God. And so it shouldn't be too surprising for us that after all these years, losing Sarah causes Abraham to weep over her death. It's amazing that there would be some who would say that Abraham is showing a lack of faith here, but there are people out there who say that. No, there there is a place for grieving the loss of a loved one. It wasn't a matter of him 
just not wanting to lose someone he loves. He passed that test with Isaac. It was a matter of him just grieving his loss. There's a very very significant difference between the kind of grief that he would have felt with Isaac and the kind of grief that he's feeling with Sarah. See, with, with Isaac... God had instructed him to kill Isaac, yes, but, but Abraham was expecting to see a miracle. He was expecting that God was going to resurrect him from the dead. But he has no expectation of that with Sarah. He has no expectation that Sarah's death would be reversed. Not in this life. Not in this life. So having been forced to face the possibility of losing my wife a couple times this year, you know, I personally can't imagine what kind of a person Abraham would be if he had not wept over the death of his wife. I mean, I wept at the very thought of the possibility of such a thing. Something that every single person on the face of the earth knows in the depths of their hearts, and which more importantly, Scripture itself affirms, is that death is the great enemy. Yes, Christ has overcome death. Christ has defeated death. No, death is not final. But sin, sin has brought this horrible consequence, this judgment upon every member of the human race. James Montgomery Boyce notes of Abraham's response. He says, quote, Not to mourn is a great failure, but to mourn indefinitely is equally an error. Life must go on. There is a time for mourning and grieving and weeping. And the Scriptures instruct us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. That's Romans chapter 12, verse 15. Even Jesus wept over the death of Lazarus, a loved one. And if anyone knows that death isn't final, it would be Jesus. Well, there is a time for mourning, but it cannot go on indefinitely. Life goes on, and we must make the best we can. We must make the most we can with the time that each one of us has been given. And maybe this is why only two verses are devoted to Sarah's death. Verses 1 and 2, that's, that's it. The rest of this chapter deals with how Abraham responds to her death. So we need to understand that in one sense, Abraham is being tested here. He had just received news that his brother's wife and, and concubine had brought additional family members into the world. And back in Abraham's day, it was customary that when a person died, they would be brought back to their homeland. So with his brother having so many new children and you know, the, the news getting to him right before Sarah's death, it would have been an excuse for him to go back home, go back to Ur of the Chaldeans. It would have just been easier that way. But Abraham knew, he knew, he believed that God had personally led Sarah and Abraham to the promised land, had led them to Canaan. This was the land that God was going to give them. Verse 19 is going to tell us that Abraham buried her in Canaan instead of taking her back to his homeland. And the reason he did that is part of the whole point of this passage. And that is, Abraham, in the midst of this grief, this trial, this valley, Abraham still had unshakable faith 
in the promises of God. That's why he buries Sarah in this land. Death has a way of making us think, doesn't it? It has a way of reminding us that someday we're going to be doing the same thing. We're going to face the same thing. It forces us to think beyond the current moment, beyond the present moment. It forces us to think eternally. And it causes us, if our faith is in Christ and if our hope is in Him and in the promises of God, it makes us all the more eager for the fulfilling of God's greatest plans, including His promise that there will be a day when we are not only removed from the penalty of sin, removed from the power of sin, but that we are removed from the presence of sin. Including all the consequences. There will be a place where we go where there's no more death. There's no more sin. God had promised that Abraham would have this land. That he and his descendants would have this land. Abraham believed. He believed with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength that the promises of God would be fulfilled. Somehow, some way. Even if he didn't understand it in the moment, God would be faithful to what he had promised. Just like with Isaac. It's the same attitude he had with Isaac. I don't understand how this is going to work out, but God's going to be faithful. So God's got something in mind. Same thing here. Why would he go back to Ur then? If he believes what God has promised, why would he go back to Ur? Why would he leave the land that God had promised him? Abraham believed God's promises. And thus he wanted Sarah's bones to be there when that promise was fulfilled. And thus he personally sets out to secure a place to bury his wife's body. Let's look at verses 3-9. to And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for, my, for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now at the time, the Hittites were the ones who ruled the land. And so he goes before them, and they're quick to give him a hearing and to grant Abraham permission to bury Sarah in their land. And the, you know, the answer that they give, the response that they give, might seem like it's gentle and, and sincere and, and compassionate and everything, but actually commentators are split right down the middle on this issue. Either way, this report gives us insight into all these ancient customs that they practiced in the Near East back in Abraham's day. Abraham bows before them, he presents his request humbly, and the response is basically to say, You can bury her wherever you like. We're not going to withhold any property that you desire. So bury her wherever you want. And Abraham insists that they allow him to pay full price for the burial location. He doesn't want to take it as a gift. He wants to pay what's fair. 
It's amazing to me, as, as I think about this, it's amazing to me that Abraham had the presence of mind to conduct his, this, this business transaction with such humility and, and courtesy. He could have invoked the promises of God. He could have gone before them and said, you know what, God has promised me this land, so you'd better just give me whatever I want. He could have said that. He, he, he could have. He could have used the situation to evoke compassion or, or, or sympathy and thus get a better deal than he actually needed. But no, he conducts his business honestly and forthrightly, the way that a person of faith should conduct their business and with a clear presence of mind here. He, he's, he, he's, he's not out of his mind with grief. He's dealing with it. Paul tells us to do all things for the glory of God, and that certainly includes the way that we conduct our business affairs. The Hittites already hated God. And so if Abraham had, had done these things, if he had invoked the promises of God, or if he had tried to, to milk a little bit more compassion, a little bit more land out of them, yeah, they, they already hated God. You know, Abraham didn't need to give them additional reasons unnecessarily. And the same goes for us as well. And so Abraham identifies the spot, the, the cave that he desires to purchase. He wants to purchase a cave that's owned by a man named Ephron for the full price. And so we continue, verses 10 to 16. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my Lord, hear me. I will give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me. I will give, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. Maybe the wisest thing that Abraham does here is that he conducts his business with witnesses. He does it publicly. Ephron offers in front of everybody to give Abraham all the land that, that he wants and more as a gift. But Abraham doesn't take freebies from people who are giving that freebie for something other than the glory of God. And we should remember back to chapter 14, the way that Abraham turned down riches from the king of Sodom. And why did he turn down that offer when he had the opportunity to, to reap all the riches of war, all the spoils of war? Why did he turn it down? He said to the king, I would not take a thread or a sandal strap that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. So notice, by the way, that Ephron isn't just saying, I'll, I'll give you the cave. No, he offers to give the whole field away. And maybe... Because this was all to, you know, done publicly, maybe Ephron would have stood by his offer to, to just give it all away. 
But Abraham didn't want anyone to believe that he was in any way, for any reason, indebted to a pagan Hittite. Having received such a valuable gift, yeah, that would have been a really nice gesture. But further down the road, Abraham's thinking further down the road here, and he knows that further down the road, taking this whole field and the cave would have created problems and hostility and bitterness further down the road. It would have opened the door to a Pandora's box worth of problems. And so Abraham insists on paying full price. He doesn't set the price. He says, you know, tell me what it's worth. I'll pay you fair price. Not just for the cave, but for the whole field too. And so Ephron, his response is very interesting. He says, hey, you know, what's, what's 400 shekels of silver between a guy like me and a guy like you? What's 400 shekels of silver? <laughs> it's kind of a funny question because Ephron is really taking Abraham to the cleaners here. He is extorting Abraham. He's charging him an exorbitant amount for this land. There's no way that this land was worth 400 shekels of silver. He was extorting Abraham right in front of everyone. And keep in mind that a shekel in this time wouldn't have been a coin. It would have been a measurement of weight. Uh, Coins wouldn't be invented for several centuries at this point. So it was all done by weight. And so he does it according to the weights current among the merchants. And the merchants, obviously, if you didn't know, they had a reputation for making it a little bit more. You know, 400 shekels of silver, well, okay, let's, let's see what that weighs. Oh, well, actually, it turns out to be closer to 500. Who knows? But Abraham agrees to do whatever. Whatever it, whatever it costs, I'll, I'll give it to you. 400 shekels, okay. This field, oh, and the cave too would cost Abraham roughly six and a quarter pounds of silver. That is an unreasonable, exorbitant sum of money. Nevertheless, Abraham says, fine, whatever. You got it. And so they make the transaction publicly. So that the purpose, so so the, the purchase and the ownership, not to mention Ephron's swindling, cheating, extorting ways, could not be disputed. And so with the burial location secured, Abraham goes on with the business. Let's look at verses 17 to 20. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of, the, of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that it is in were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. So as it turned out, Ephron, extorting Abraham, giving him more land than he had initially asked for, turned out to be kind of a blessing. It turned out to be providential. You might ask, you know, where, where's God in this story? That's one question that you always want to, want to ask, especially when you're reading historical narrative. Where is God in this story? Well, we see Him in, in the details, and we see Him in how this land would be used. Abraham was able to secure this spot only because, first of all, God had provided him 
with enough shekels of silver, enough wealth that he was able to afford to do so. Ultimately, Ephron wasn't extorting Abraham, wasn't abusing Abraham. He was extorting God. He was extorting God. He would stand before God in judgment for his wickedness. But we also see God's blessing in the fact that Abraham got a field. Not just a cave, he got a whole field, a large plot of land, more than enough to hold the bones of Sarah and Abraham and multiple patriarchs for generations to come. By faith in God and in His promises, Abraham buried Sarah there. By faith in God, Isaac would bury Abraham there. By faith, Jacob would bury Isaac there. By faith, Jacob would instruct his sons to bring him back to his homeland, to bring him back there, to bury him there. By faith, Joshua and Caleb, when they went to explore the land, they declared that the land of Hebron could be taken, while the faithless declared that it couldn't be. All of these people bore the same testimony. They had faith in God. They had faith in His promises. They believed His promises even beyond the grave. Referencing the great faith of Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham, the author of Hebrews would go on to write this from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 to 16. All these died in faith. Again, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham. All these died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. You know, one of the first, one of the primary characteristics of somebody who legitimately trusts in God, legitimately trusts in the promises of God, is that they see themselves the same way that Abraham saw himself. As an alien and a sojourner in this world. This world is not our home. This is, this is temporary. This, we're not going to be in the United States of America for all of eternity. This world is not our home. Our identity, first and foremost, is that we are citizens of heaven living in a foreign land. Your identity is not based on your gender. It's not based on your sexual preference. It's not based on your race. It's not based on anything before it's based on the fact that you are a citizen of heaven by grace through faith in Christ. Like Abraham and Sarah, we desire, we, we, we long for something better than this. We long for a better country, not an earthly country, but a heavenly country. We long for a city prepared for us by God. Paul would say to the Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. He says our citizenship isn't here first and foremost. 
First and foremost, you're not an American or, or whatever your, your nationality might be. If you believe in Christ, first and foremost, you are a citizen of heaven. Longing and living for heaven is a primary characteristic of those who truly believe God and truly believe His promises. How was Abraham able to go on with life? Yeah, he grieved, but life went on. Life continued. How was he able to go on with life with such peace? You can't miss the fact that he had such peace about Sarah's death. He grieved it, but it didn't destroy him. He grieved it, but he wasn't completely torn apart by it. Why not? Because he believed God's promises. He also knew that death was not final. And this is, this is central to the gospel message. Remember, Abraham believed the gospel. And central to the gospel message is that death is not final. The wage of sin is death, yes, but Christ defeated death. Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Where is it? It's gone. The sting of death is gone because it's not final. It's not permanent. Paul said, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. He's saying, yeah, this is how we know that we'll be resurrected too because Christ was He's prefaced chapter 15 by saying, hey, you know, 500 plus people have seen the resurrected Christ. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. They knew that was false. So the first thing was false. If the dead are not raised, that means they will be raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Believers who have died are gone forever if there's no resurrection of the dead. He says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Abraham knew that death was not final. When Christ returns, there will be a resurrection. Paul says that if there isn't, if there isn't going to be a resurrection someday, then our faith is worthless. And Abraham believed that Sarah would stand on the land that God had promised. Abraham had peace because he knew. He knew that death was not final. The fact that God has a sovereign plan that is unfolding through the ages, a sovereign plan that cannot be thwarted, a sovereign plan that includes but doesn't depend upon fallen man. A sovereign plan that is determined, set in stone from eternity. A sovereign plan that is greater than the human mind can possibly fathom. The fact that God has this sovereign plan that's unfolding through the ages is the basis of the believer's peace, confidence, and assurance, both in death and in life, in the valleys or on the mountaintops. This is the basis of the believer's peace, the sovereignty of God. And so in seasons of death, life, joy, or grief, whether we have plenty or whether we are in need, we can have unshakable peace because we're not living for the things of, of this world anyway. We are, first and foremost, citizens of heaven, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We trust God's promises. We live by them. 
We've been made aliens and sojourners in this world, just like Abraham, living and pressing onward to the heavenly city, which God prepared for all who will deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow Jesus our Lord. Because that's what biblical faith does. It denies the self. It denies what we want to do. It denies all of our selfish ambition. And it submits to the will of God instead. It's normal and it's natural that we suffer and that we grieve when a loved one dies. But suffering and grieving for the Christian never should lead to hopelessness, never should lead to despair. Because it is never accidental. In a universe where God is sovereign, there is nothing that's accidental. There is nothing that you go through on a daily basis that's just a coincidence, that just happened randomly. God is sovereign over it all. And because He's sovereign over it all, not only is it not accidental, but it's not meaningless. God is using it to sanctify you. God is using it to make you, to grow you more and more in the likeness of Christ. Whatever valley you go through, God is sovereign over it. He's with you in the valley. And He's using that experience to wean you from sin. To grow you in obedience to God. To make you more like Christ. He promises that He uses it for our good and for His glory. And by faith, we believe Him. We believe Him. It doesn't mean that we're going to understand in the moment. When you are in the depths of the valley, believe me, you will not understand. You won't understand. And that's why you just need to know, you need to know that God is faithful. Because that'll be enough. That'll be enough when you're being tested. That'll be enough when you're in the depths of the valley. Death reminds us of our own mortality, of the fact that we too have a day that's coming when we will die. It causes us to think about eternity. And it causes us to seek God in ways that comfort doesn't. It causes us to seek refuge in God. And in the end, God's purposes and His promises continue to unfold through the ages. If you have not believed in Christ with the obedient faith that the Scriptures instruct us to have, you can have no peace with death. You cannot be at peace with the idea that one day you will die. Because this world, for the person who will not believe, this world is as close to heaven as they will ever come for all of eternity. And yet we remember that Jesus promised this. Here's a promise. He said, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. He will never, ever turn somebody away when they come to Him with sincere, genuine faith.
And so if you come to Him today in repentance and faith, He will receive you. He will make you a kingdom of heaven. And you can live your life with the assurance that if you were to die tonight, if you were to die in five minutes, death will not separate you from what you treasure the most. It will bring you to your treasure. It opens that door. You can have peace with death, but you must first have peace with God. And the only way to have peace with God is by faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. That's the difference between God's enemies and God's people, God's children. Peace through faith in Christ. And if you've done that, if you've put your faith in Christ, if you've repented and believed in Him, you can know. You can know that because we have peace with God through Christ, we can be at peace with whatever life throws our way. Whatever valleys we may go through, whatever may come in this life, we can be at peace with it because we don't fear death. We are citizens of heaven. We're citizens of God's kingdom. And that's something that this world can never take away from us. And so it's an unshakable peace. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. I thank You, Father, that You have allowed me to have the presence of mind this week to prepare to study Your Word. Father, thank You for Your goodness. Thank You for Your faithfulness. Thank You for Your grace. We thank You, God, that when we read Your Word, when we study Your Word, we're grown in Your likeness. Your work is accomplished, is done in us. And we become more like Christ. So we thank You for that. We thank You also, Father, that You have made us Your children through adoption. We know, Father, that every one of us was born a child of wrath. We know that our sin is great. We know that if You had never loved us, we never would have loved You. But thank You that You sent Your Son to ransom us, to redeem us. And we thank You that You send Your Holy Spirit to renew us, to regenerate us. And so, Father, as we go along on this earthly journey as aliens and sojourners, we ask that You would sustain us, sustain our journey, sustain our our walk by Your grace. In seasons when we wander, Father, we pray for Your discipline that You would bring us back. We pray, Lord, that You would teach us to be a people who love You and who treasure You above all things. And thus, nothing in this life can lead us to despair. Instill in us, O God, grant us a deeper faith, a deeper trust in Your promises that Christ may be glorified in our lives. It's in His name we pray. Amen.
This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.